Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The New York Times ran an article this week by Sarah Maslin Near. It was an article about our flag. Um, you know it, 13 stripes representing the 13 original colonies, a dusting of stars representing each state in the Union. It has had infinite meanings since our country was founded 244 years ago. Infinite meanings. Raised at Iwo Jima, it was a symbol of victory. Lit on fire, it became a searing image of the protests against the Vietnam War. Ribboned around the Twin Towers on commemorative 9-11 lapel pins, it is a reminder of the threats against a delicate democracy. And you and I both know that politicians of all stripes have sought to wrap themselves in it. But something is changing today. What once was a unifying symbol has become something that is not about pledging allegiance together, but is about interpreting this flag in different ways. And it's made this celebration of the 4th of July, or Independence Day, as some people insist on calling it, of patriotic bunting and cakes with blueberries and strawberries arranged into this old glory, into another cleft in our country that seems no longer quite so indivisible under a flag that threatens to fray. You know, the truth is, the same thing can be said about our holy scriptures. Infinite, infinite interpretations. And today, more than ever, it feels like that we're going to our separate corners because of how we read and understand scripture. So on this 4th of July, Independence Day, in the year of our Lord, 2000. 21, I want to suggest that we consider this four weeks, four Sundays in July, a Freedom Summer. You know, I don't know if you're aware, but the Freedom Summer, in its original manifestation, was, called, was actually a Freedom Summer project um, and was a volunteer campaign in the United States launched in June of 1964. It was an attempt to register as many African-American voters as possible in Mississippi. Blacks had been, as you know, restricted from voting since the turn of the century due to barriers to voter registration and other laws, in spite of the Emancipation Proclamation. The project also set up dozens of freedom schools, freedom houses, and community centers in small towns throughout Mississippi to aid the local black population. But during the 10-month project, or 10-week project, I should say, workers were beaten, 
People were arrested. Churches were bombed or burned. Black homes and businesses were bombed and burned. Civil rights workers were killed. People were critically wounded. It felt like something far from freedom. So with this original freedom summer seared on our hearts and minds, and with our current divisive political landscape sketched out before us, I invite us to take up a new understanding of Freedom Summer, one in which we discover how our faith frees us, how our faith frees us to listen, to speak, to be people of justice, and to be creators of unity and peace. And that, in fact, we can discover in our own sacred scriptures in the Bible that we find a tool that is, does not, is not in any way designed to confine us or bind us or judge us or condemn us, but is a collection of books and letters, poems and prophecies designed to free us, to live fully, to love wastefully and be all that God has created us to be. And not just us, but all God's people, all God's children, regardless of background and nationality, of race, of faith, of any, anything, that we are all created in this way. Years ago, when I had just graduated from seminary, I was introduced to a book by a man, a biblical scholar by the name of Marcus Borg. And I read a book he had written entitled Reading the Bible Again for the First Time. You talk about scales falling from my eyes. I mean, I had just graduated from seminary and yet this book awakened me and enlightened me about scripture and how it can be understood and read and how it can be freeing in ways that I had never even discovered in my own seminary education. And so at the beginning of this book he talks about three lenses that we can come and approach the Bible with. And I'm not even, I can't even go into the depth of it, but in essence, he said that the first lens is seeing the Bible again. And he points out that what we read impacts how we see. How we read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians today. Listen, how we read the Bible divides us. The first group, and he, he divided the groups into two different groups. The first group we often refer to as Bible-believing Christians. In fact, that's how they labeled. I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I go to a church where they preach the Bible. Okay? And that understanding of Scripture is that the Bible is infallible. It was handed down by God to the people who put it into Holy Scripture and should be read literally. The other group is clear that they are not biblical literalists, but not really sure what they are. And that probably is all of us. You know, we, we're clear that we're not really literalists, but how are we supposed to understand this collection of writings? So uh, Marcus Borg suggested that uh, as progressive or liberal Christians, which is kind of the people that fall into this category, or maybe just it's also people who just, they're not sure what they are, but they certainly are not literalists, okay? 
And a lot of those people have left the church, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, so in his book, Marcus Borg writes this interesting thing. He talks about that when ancient peoples, particularly indigenous peoples in the United States, sat down, their tribal leader would say to them, I'm getting ready to tell you a story. I don't know if it actually happened, but I know that it is true. This is how he understands this group of people reading scripture. That we understand that scripture has power and meaning and it transcends time and space. And we know that these stories are true. We just don't know if they actually happened or not. But we know the essence of these stories is true. The second lens he asks us to look at is the Bible and God. There's a Buddhist understanding of a, a saying that says, um, talks about a finger pointing at the moon. Nan's nodding, because Nan knows this, okay? Finger pointing at the moon. So what this means is, we as people of the Christian faith, we don't worship the Bible. Now, a lot of people you come in contact with who feel strongly about scripture and read it literally, it will sound like they worship the Bible, right? We don't worship the Bible, rather, we worship the God to whom the Bible points. So, a finger pointing at the moon. We also understand the Bible as a lens itself. That, it, that we look through the Bible and we discover who we are in relationship to the God who is spoken of in Scripture. And lastly, he talks about the Bible as sacrament. Now, as mainline Protestants, we practice two sacraments, the baptism and Holy Communion. But there is lots of ritual and other things that we understand. But the Bible as sacrament means, again, when we come to this table in a, in a non-literalist way, we don't actually see bread and cup as literal, but rather as, um, well, let me say it this way. We know that Jesus is in all of this, right? But it's a mystery. It is a mystery. And so the same way with Scripture. We know God is in the midst of Scripture. We know Jesus is in the midst of Scripture. We know the Holy Spirit is all over the Scriptures. But a lot of it is mystery that we have to interpret and we have to understand and we have to ask ourselves questions about. You know... Um, a lot of people in, that read the Bible literally will say, I, I read the Bible literally, and so that's how I read it. And what I want to say is, okay, yeah, but when your priest or your pastor or your rector say to you, here's a scripture, and here's what it means, they are interpreting that scripture. They are telling you what they think that scripture means. It's not just literal. Uh, and so his third lens is that he wants us to think about history and metaphor. So when we read scripture, we understand that there's some, there are different frames. There's when the story actually happened. There's then when it becomes put into a written story that is then put down and read and edited. And then that story today. 
So there's these different frames in which we understand scripture. And when he talks about metaphor, he means that, and, and what I want to say here is almost all of us are biblical pseudo-literalists. I mean, there's certain passages in Scripture that we want to say, well, that really happened. For example, for years, I rejected some of Scripture because I didn't believe it really happened. But then, you know, Jesus' birth. Oh, man, yeah, those angels were out there singing. And the shepherds came. And and I want that to be real, real, real. I want to smell the cow manure. You know? But, uh, and, and the truth is, some of the stories are real. We know that from historians like Josephus, that some things we know actually happen. But, but there's something else that happens when we interpret Scripture through metaphor. Let's take the black church, for instance. Okay? In the black church, if you've ever been to a service, you know that they kind of carry on for a while. And, and they are all fired up. And they're singing, and they're clapping, and they talk to their pastor. And, and inevitably... In a black pastor's sermon, at some point, that pastor's going to talk about the Exodus. You know why? Because for black Christians, the Exodus wasn't just something that happened in one time and place in Egypt. It happened here and now, and it is still happening as black Americans are trying to find their freedom They're trying to understand freedom. They're trying to understand where God is taking them. And black pastors know that, and they preach it, and they talk about it. And so the scriptures come to life today, right? And that's exciting. This is what Marcus Borg helped me understand. So our reading today, I don't know, I asked James and Angie about this earlier. Uh, We read the translation, or it's not a translation, the paraphrase from the message 2 Timothy 3, Timothy 3, 10-17. But there's a verse in there, verse 16, that reads this way in other interpretations. In the New Revised Standard Version, for example, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now that's a little bit more confining, you know? And biblical literalists have argued for years that that one passage says that all scripture is good for the edification for people of faith. And that that's why we don't mess with it. That in the end of Revelation, which talks about not changing one letter. Um, but, uh, but listen to how Peterson paraphrases that one passage of scripture. Every part of scripture is God-breathed. And useful one way or another. Correcting our mistakes, training us to live in God's way. In our Thursday night Bible study, we talked about this passage last Thursday. And what we finally decided was that, yeah, all scripture is God-breathed. Even the hard stuff. You know when Paul wags on about how women shouldn't talk in church? Or preach? Shouldn't have any authority? Well, as a young woman growing up, I, didn't, I felt called to ministry, but I didn't think it was available to me because of that kind of teaching of Scripture. And, uh, and I struggled with it, and I had to wrestle with it, and I had to decide what that really meant for me. And I really struggled with it until one day my pastor at the time said to me, you know what, I didn't believe that women should be ordained for the longest time. Until a woman stood up 
and talked to me about her call to ordained ministry. And it was the same story as my story. And then I could not deny that the Holy Spirit had come to her and filled her and given her the opportunity to preach and teach and lead in worship. So we have to wrestle with those things, the hard parts of Scripture. We don't get rid of them, but we wrestle with them. And we look at the history, and we look at the metaphor, and we look at where we are today, and how we understand Scripture to come to life right now, in the here and now. Well, you know, things are pretty tough right now in our country. We're divided, and as my mentor, Reverend Dr. Steve Sprinkle at Bright Divinity School, said to me at lunch, one day this last week, you need to get prepared because it's, getting, it's going to be worse. Things are going to get worse. He said, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the child of a prophet, but prophetically, we need to get ready as progressive Christians of faith because things are going to get worse. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to read and understand the Bible? Are we going to read it as a document that confines us and binds us and judges us and condemns us? Or... Are we going to read and study and learn and listen and proclaim that what we know of our faith is that it's freeing. It frees us to live fully as God has created us to be. Now, I'm very excited to tell you that this week, Stephanie worked on our website some. And for a long time, we've had this uh, category called who we are. And there's been nothing under it. (laughs) Because we couldn't really figure out, you know, we looked at other websites, blah, blah, blah. Well, we finally did it. And we finally have now put on our website who we are, what we believe, what we value, and so on and so forth. So, Well, I told Stephanie this morning as I was looking over my summer, I said, we don't have anything about the Bible and how we read it. Well, so we got to go fix that. But I want you to go and see that page, who we are on our website and read what we've written there because I think it will help us understand better how we read the Bible. I told you that uh, when I graduated from um, seminary, I ran across this book by Marcus Borg, Reading the Bible Again for the First Time. There's another book that has informed my faith in a deep and personal way. And I, I don't know, I don't read many books that I know exactly where I was when I read something. But this book I did, it's a book called If Grace is True by Philip Gully and James Mulholland. And I remember I was coming back from Oklahoma City where we had a parish church there. I was at the Cathedral of Hope at the time. We had a parish church in Oklahoma City. And Michael or I would take turns flying up there after Sunday worship on Sunday afternoon and then hold the service in Oklahoma City and fly back on Monday. I don't know how I survived that. But anyway, I did. And... um, I was on my way back from Oklahoma City. I was reading this book. And all of a sudden, I just felt warmed by the Spirit. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is everything I have always believed. But I, nobody has ever put in words for me. So I want to read you part of what happens here. They write, Salvation comes with believing God loves you unconditionally. It is abandoning the misconception that you are rejected because of your bad behavior or accepted because of your goodness. Only when we repent of this self-absorption and focus on God's love can this love alter us. This is a journey home. It is accepting that we are saved by grace. When we read the Bible with new lenses, 
the lenses provided for us by scholars like Marcus Borg and James Mulholland and Philip Gully, we discover these truths and we are set free. This is our Freedom Summer. Our Freedom Summer, a summer to read the Bible with new lenses, a summer to discover who we are and whose we are, every last one of us. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen.